Since March 2020, collectively our experiences, relationships, and framework for understanding our day-to-day lives have changed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a society, we're navigating these challenges, seeing new opportunities, and facing the fear and beauty of the unknown as we adapt. Lore Arts has been collecting stories and talking to artists, farmers, academics, community leaders, and members who share their experiences and perspectives during the pandemic. I'm Fanling Suen. And I'm Ali Roback. And, and this, this is Pause. Pause. This conversation was recorded in October 2020. Today on the show, we have Mervyn and Sara, sociologists from the University of Guelph. Mervyn Horgan, born and raised in Cork, Ireland. Mervyn immigrated to Toronto in 2000 to pursue graduate research in urban sociology. He is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. His research gathers an eclectic set of substantive interests grounded in a normative commitment to solidarity. He is a principal investigator on the Sociable Cities Project. Sara Linema is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Guelph. Her research and writing examines cultural meeting and practices with an overarching interest in how individuals and organizations navigate conditions of uncertainty. She is a co-investigator for the Sociable Cities Project. And together, they are the brains behind the Sociable Cities Project based out of the University of Guelph. Welcome, you two. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Where are you two now? Well, I'm in the kitchen (laughs) beside the guinea pigs. And I'm in Guelph, two floors up. (laughs) Um, and, And how have you been doing this the last... I guess more than several months now. How have you been adapting? Forced, forced to adapt. So uh, I'm we're doing okay. I think I'm doing okay. I'm uh, trying to keep children busy. Pretty happy that school started up and hasn't closed down yet. We were pretty worried about that happening. Um, right. But yeah. uh, but work has been pretty difficult. Trying to move classes online and trying to support, you know support students because everyone is sort of pretty stressed out workwise and uh, you know colleagues and students are all pretty stressed so uh trying to, trying to not add to that as best best i can yeah i i think trying to appreciate the small things in everyday life you know i feel like um day-to-day life has become so much more contained you look forward to walking the kids to school um <laughs> <laughs> leaving them at school, <laughs> coming home, <laughs> working, um, all within this much smaller environment. Like normally we would travel a, a lot, like even just day tour conferences from so- symposiums, teaching, and suddenly our movements are much more contained. Yeah, for sure. Like the home space becomes your work, your family life, your, your school in some cases. Can you share with us your Sociable Cities project and a bit more about your partnership? Sure. I'll speak to my own particular interest in it, I guess, and we probably come at it from slightly different directions, but they're kind of complementary, I think. And the basic idea, I guess, is that, you know, we live in a rapidly urbanizing planet. Um, you know, over 10 years ago, 
we reach the point where more than 50% of the world's, the global population lives in large urban settlements and in ca- Canada is an overwhelmingly urban nation. And despite the fact that the territory called Canada is gigantic, we're, pr- we're squeezed into a pretty small amount of that, actually. Um, basically, our 10 biggest cities have, you know, hold a lot of the population. Um, so, you know, that's happening both in Canada and globally. And so we, in the context of that sort of rapid urbanization, um, and at the same time, kind of increased global mobility. So a lot more people moving and immigrating and moving between different parts of the world. Urban life has become sort of the, the kind of normal way of life for the global majority. Um, and that, you know, obviously there's very different versions of urban life and it looks different in different places. I mean, also culturally and economically and politically, but there, the sort of one fundamental part that's sort of shared is that when we're in public spaces, in urban public spaces, um, we're in spaces where we don't know other people. Um, so kind of my interest in particular was in that context of rapid uh, urbanization and uh, increased global mobility, we're more likely to be surrounded by people we don't know compared to you know more traditional sort of kinship networks and being in small villages, smaller smaller towns and cities, let's say, where we know more people. So a kind of a challenge in the future, in the contemporary world and in the future is trying to understand how we can best live t- together among people we don't know and who we don't necessarily need to know. But how can, how can we live and thrive um, and how can we kind of learn about public spaces and learn about public spaces that work well um, where people are are having, good, you know, if, if they're not having good and friendly, positive, sociable kinds of interactions, at least they're not having negative ones, right? So and we know, for example, you know, women's experience in public spaces in many parts of the world, not just, uh, you know, not just in Canada, but women, for example, consistently report a sort of a fear of public space um, because, you know, public spaces are, are fearful kind of spaces if you have wolf whistles and threats of harassment and things like that. So, my kind of interest with with kind of being part of the team putting this project together was to try and understand like look at how how what kind of public spaces work work well and where people are having positive interactions across difference or at least where they're not having negative ones and to try and understand it at the the experiential level um people's experiences of it not just sort of as plant like a urban planner kind of like a god's eye view from above but rather what's it like to live in the midst of of that and to treat being surrounded by strangers and people we don't know as utterly normal. Mm-hmm. You use two terms here on the spectrum. You use convivial and conflictual between strangers in, in these kind of public parks and non-commercial spaces. Can maybe either one of you expand on that a, a little bit and maybe some themes that have emerged uh, within that aspect of your research? Sure. Um, so this idea is, is that actually our everyday public interactions are full of very kind of subtle, but largely like amicable interactions, which we tend not to focus on because what, sta- what stands out more is when you have a negative or conflicted interaction. We always remember those stories, but actually we largely sustain collective life in public spaces seamlessly. Like we, we get along. And so we, it's this idea that what happens when we concentrate on these actually very everyday, but, lar- but even largely, like, if not pleasurable, at least um, not fraught interactions. We can learn something about how things work well in public spaces. So kind of like we're looking at these everyday examples. So we've been focusing right now explicitly on these kind of like what, leisure spaces, openly accessible leisure spaces. So we spent a lot of time at the skate park 
and ice rinks in the winter. Um, so these leisure spaces where some of the general rules about interaction are slightly suspended, which means that you have a kind of more like an openness to interacting with those who are unknown to you, which you wouldn't necessarily have in other contexts. And it kind of reverses. So kind of like some of the general like norms of engagement where when you're skating at an ice rink and we explicitly only do ice rinks with no hockey. So this means that without like the interruptions of hockey, when people are skating. So for example, you'll have like little children who will cheer on like a, a, an adult skater, new skater, right? Things that don't often happen where they can be kind of like, yeah, good, good job, old person. <laughs> You're doing it, you know, and like, that'll be considered fine. Like uh, you, you have ways that people help and assist on the ice that would kind of generally like um, maybe violate some of your, your day-to-day expectations about what a stranger can say or cannot say to you. And it's not considered to be um, inappropriate or threatening. It's suddenly okay. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a long history of, of kind of social research on public spaces um, and interactions between strangers. Um, and social scientists are kind of have long been interested in this because it's a there's kind of deep theoretical questions that you can kind of get at around social order and how do you how do you how does a society um, maintain kind of order and some sense of cohesiveness cohesion um, and sense of being part part of a group even if you don't know people right which was easy when we kind of when in, in more sort of traditional villages and things that that I kind of mentioned but we were sort of interested because there's a there's a burgeoning interest internationally. Um, in in this sort of term conviviality, um, and it's a beautiful term. Right? It comes from I mean, it's like it, it means con vive, right? Con meaning together, and vive to to live to live together, right? And uh, um, a British sociologist by the name of Paul Gilroy, um, sort of a sociologist, cultural studies scholar, sort of said that we need you know we need to take conviviality, the fact that we live together among difference in particular. He's talking about it particularly around um, racial and ethnic difference in in the in the UK context, but increasingly globally we just have to take it as a fact that we live together, right? We can't right. just say like, oh, you know, this is, you know, like I'm Irish and you can't say like Ireland is like white, you know, pasty people or whatever, right? It's like, well, no, the fact is we live in spaces where where we're just simply surrounded. It's a fact of life that we have to figure out how to live together, that we have to. So, and he's kind of careful that people who've taken it up have been careful to kind of say, you know, we, we generally, the word conviviality generally has a kind of a positive idea you know yeah um, and, and we're kind of you know we want to retain that positive idea but the fact that we live together also means that we're in conflict often so what makes a public space create certain kinds of dynamics what draws a group of potential people that might come into that space to get into the, a more conflict-based interaction and what draws a group of people to kind of cheer on an adult to skate yeah you know researchers have shown for example that like you know it's really like really simple finding in research in australia um uh, called the everyday life in australia study and that was done about 10 or 15 years ago and they found basically that people are way more likely to report having crappy encounters in public space and guess when at lunchtime in city centers and at rush hour it's like a really basic sort of a thing like when people are moving at different speeds Right. You know how frustrated you are when you're in a rush and somebody's sure. still in front of you on an escalator yeah. or something. Right. Yeah. That's really basic sort of stuff. Those are not necessarily super interesting to us, I think. Um, I think I'm increasingly convinced um, just from the, the kind of the, the, the first uh, wave of research that we've done that um, spaces 
that permit multiple uses and that permit that 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 facilitate uh, the presence of um inter, uh, of many generations in particular i think is really really important mm. you know so spaces that are exclusively populated by let's say we've been studying the skate park you know <laughs> like pretty much you know 5 to 20 year old boys and men uh-uh. not very not very nice spaces to be honest with you <laughs> there's cool things happening and they they have interesting things but the they become they very quickly become sort of exclusive feeling spaces. So I think the intergenerational aspect is one that's increasingly being lost in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the invention of the playground, they look lovely, but they're terrible because they they quarantine children into specific areas and say this is for play, and that's not for play. You know that that those park benches are not for play. That's for play. Yeah. So I, I you know. Yeah. So another way of thinking about it is the flexibility of spaces and use. Mm. And I think that like we would have a concern about this idea that we seem to be so attached to single use function. Like, yeah, like uh, Mervyn was saying that a bench is only for sitting. It's not for lounging. It's not for staying too long. There's this Mm -hmm. move to create. So more and more restrictions that operate on a in a material way so the physical built environment as well as through kind of like bylaw regulations present so we find that things like heavily patrolled spaces really constrict how the space is used Mm -hmm. or we've been having this debate at our local wading pool where they want to change everything to these splash pads right those things like spout water and have like I don't know, like spraying features, they call them, I don't know, water features or something. And right now we just have a very shallow, really old school, like cement kind of pool that has, I don't know, like a foot of water in it. And the kids love it because you can do different things with it. And none of that could happen. And you couldn't have older kids playing it with younger kids if they change it all to like um, bumblebee spray features. Yeah. Because you can't, all all that does is spray water. All you can do is run through the water. And so those is that combination of features of material kind of uh, social norms, as well as kind of bylaw and regulations of spaces that work together. You know, and it's not just only about leisure spaces, but also the kind of just the simply the right to be in public, right? Um, and to be, be allowed to be in public, and not to be infringed upon in ways that are intrusive in some way like so you know i mentioned the case of women right so you know there's evidence for example that uh members of visible minorities in particular uh, racialized people black people in particular right are more likely to kind of have have unsolicited encounters with police right um Mm -hmm. homeless people get a lot of unsolicited commentary from passers-by right things like this protesters in public spaces so i we're kind of interested in thinking and trying to figure out how do we facilitate the development of public spaces where people can simply be present right and feel a kind of a feeling of safety is important this is an older idea jane jacobs was you know is kind of important but um there's lots of good criticism of that right but the sense that people feel safe and um in public but also uh, feel a sense of freedom right to be in public and to not be infringed upon in negative ways right And you talk about like the freedom of movement through space. And so now we're in a time where there's a lot more, I guess, patrolling of spaces just by the fact that we're in a pandemic environment. So at one point, like the parks were closed off and taped off and there are restrictions in cities in terms of curfew. And then I also kind of thinking 
about the population that's either you know in a minority population or disenfranchised economically or socially that their use of space became and still is quite limited during the pandemic in terms of where they can be in terms of just not having, as you say, like their rights infringed upon in a public space. Can you tell me a bit about those considerations now? Yeah, those are really great points. Um, So certainly the question becomes, even in these extreme circumstances, how do you maintain some notion of flexibility, movement, creativity? And understanding, too, that space is experienced differently, like space as a social product means that depending Mm -hmm. on your social location and circumstances, that will actually impact your sense of entitlement and interactions with space. Uh, One thing that became so interesting with the, as spaces, public spaces were closed down, for example, with the parks you mentioned, and we can understand how you know, from a public health perspective, how they arrived at that decision. But I was, what I found most interesting is the ways that people would always, were trying to find safe ways to innovate. So like around our park, so we have, you know, so the little park in the neighborhood. And what would happen is kids would play in very small groups on the road beside the park. (laughs) So you'd have the big empty green space and then all these small groups of kids in their safe little kind of whatever was at the time possible pod and they would play like so they're playing like soccer on the road <laughs> I was like, and you, you can help but wonder you're like hmm is this better <laughs> is this, was this the intent here yeah it's been i mean it's been really interesting so, you know we we sort of we the, the, the on the social cities project we you know we received federal funding to to study um uh convivial interactions in public spaces and this was pre-covid and then suddenly, you know, it was public spaces kind of ceased to exist as social spaces, right? There weren't, you know, downtown Guelph was empty. Toronto was empty. The spaces we were supposed to be studying were empty, like really had no no people in them. And we weren't interested in the spaces, essentially. We were interested in the, the interactions occurring within them, right? Um, so, but the interesting thing is, I guess, that like, you know, there's a, there's a sort of an idea in urban sociology that comes from a, a, an old Canadian thinker by, by the name of Irving Goffman. Um, who had this idea that in public spaces, strangers kind of uphold this norm um, of civil inattention so that we ignore one another. And that's a kind of a mark of, of respect is ignoring somebody you don't mm-hmm. know. And mm-hmm. it's not that we're fully ignoring one another. We're kind of, we're implicitly acknowledging the presence of someone else, but we're agreeing not to infringe upon one another. And the really interesting thing in the context of COVID is because our public spaces were unrecognizable right so when you were encountering people in public spaces there was a sort of a need to renegotiate the norms of interaction in public space so people were you know saying hello who, who you normally know, pass someone downtown you don't say hello right because you know there's stuff going on suddenly people are saying hello and so the kind of the, the norms of interaction are being renegotiated i think in, in in very interesting kinds of ways so it was perfectly permissible to to breach the norm of civil inattention that you'd normally expect, right? Yeah. Not to kind of say it's a utopian moment, but it's interesting when we're when we're in these conditions of of uncertainty, right? And this is something that that Sarah kind of studies a lot more than I do, but um, that we, you know, in conditions of, of uncertainty, we're incredibly creative. Right? Human beings all like. Um, we recently had a, a speaker by the name of George Lipsitz from, from California last week spoke to us and um, uh, gave a public talk at the university and he, uh, or a Zoom talk, I guess. Um, and he kind of talks about, you know, that people always find a way when there appears to be no way. They always find a way in the no way sort of thing, right? Sarah, maybe this will be a good time if you can tell us a bit more about 
your research on navigating conditions of uncertainty and and do you braid these concepts into your your sociable cities project in terms of how they shape encounters in public spaces uh, yeah i mean i think there's so many different ways that we kind of experience and practice uncertainty because mm-hmm. when we think about like well what does it mean to be uncertain so now it's like an uncertainty around invisible and visible risks mm-hmm. so is brushing up against somebody is that a risk and it's that kind of lack of clarity and the fact is we can't resolve that so I'm interested in kind of moments that are generally kind of they, they will not be easily resolved I find deeply uncertain circumstances sometimes comforting because it relieves you of the pressure of pretending you're ever going to know. And so in this way, it allows us a more, a wider palette of perhaps strategies of renegotiation, which you, just to tie in what you were, we were just talking about. So when you renegotiate spaces that way, it's opened up, for example, this moment where suddenly public protest is considered to be possible, which seems unlikely. I mean, I, cause I've always been interested in how like also like um, activist use of spaces too. And when I would have asked a class five years ago, three years ago, last year, actually, <laughs> Hey, has anyone ever been to a public protest? And usually they're like, you know, they're like not looking in, looking in me in the eye. Nobody wants to answer. You know, they, they, they can't, like uh, my average student class can't think of a moment when they've physically occupied uh, a space, uh, like a public space for the sake of, for the purpose of protest. And now that has actually changed. This idea that that's maybe even a viable strategy uh, for voicing concerns, discontent, uh, I, I find really interesting. So kind of old strategies are coming back too in terms of how to use public space. The uncertainty is almost synonymous in some ways with flexibility or, or creative possibility. I wanted to touch on this term that you use, soft solidarity. Can you maybe tease out the definition of what solidarity specifically means within the research and within your research parameters and expand what you mean by soft? My kind of go-to definition of solidarity, uh, definition should be succinct, uh, is we feeling. The feeling of being part of a we, right? Whatever that we is. So the idea with soft solidarity was that there's there's a lot of there's a kind of a tradition of research on what I call hard solidarity, which is kind of institutionalized formal kinds of solidarity, which are like the labor movement, really really important unions, um, you know, and people forget like that that you know paying tax. People complain about paying tax, but paying tax is actually an act of solidarity because you're paying as an individual into something that benefits may not benefit just you alone it benefits a collective right mm. um so the, the the institutionalization of a healthcare system um of a welfare system so i know if i lose my job that there will be some level of government support for me but those are kind of hard institutionalized formal forms of solidarity those aren't the only kind of solidarity that exists in society not just those formal what, what, what I'd call hard just for the sake of a contrast, basically. Um, we also, in our everyday lives, we express solidarity with one another in all sorts of ways. When my partner brings me a cup of coffee in bed, right? I mean, we have intimate sort of versions of solidarity like that. And, and you know, we call um, solidarity at the level, at the intimate relation level, love. That's what we call it, right? At a wider, more collective level, 
Um, strangers express solidarity with one another by not getting in one another's way, by providing assistance if somebody looks like they might need some assistance. Um, somebody drops something, you pick it up. So these sorts of less tangible, um, less institutionalized or formal kinds of ways of recognizing others. So my sort of idea when I think when I was kind of trying to develop this concept a little bit a few years ago was kind of thinking that like strangers express even if we don't say, hey, buddy, how's it going? All right, we're like literally explicitly reach out to someone. Mm-hmm. We're sort of, we're demonstrating that we feel ourselves to be part of something collective when we permit one another to go about our business, to, to go about using public space, let's say, for example, without getting in one another's way, without intruding upon one another, you know, um, that there's a sort of an implicit expression of solidarity happening there. And then it, and then it can be more explicit with the sort of, sorry, with the, the assistance kind of thing stuff. Um, I mean, I think that this sort of the, the kind of one of the core messages for me when I like in my interest in, in kind of solidarity is like you can't ever assume that solidarity is a given, um, that solidarity is something that's renewed and is practiced by virtue of people um, engaging with one another or or not engaging with one another in kind of in respectful and, and, and thoughtful ways in public spaces. I think that uh, that you have to actually has to be done right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's something that we do it's not just something that's simply there and that we just kind of pick at it whenever we want kind of thing it's something that we renew and that we we make right and we make and we renew and we consolidate almost like a intentionality has to go into it in in kind of ebbs and flows or or certain periods of time to kind of recalibrate the space yeah. And I mean, we know from, you know, lots of existing research and disaster management kind of stuff, for example, emergencies is people like, you know, um, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, the media coverage was about looting in stores and stuff. But on the ground, what was happening was people were assisting each other. People were, you know, pulling out inflatable boats and blowing them up and rowing to their neighbor's house to make sure that their elderly neighbor was okay and stuff. It was those those were the actual practices people were engaged in. It's just the somebody smashing a store window and taking cans of beans for their kids made for better television. Right. right? Um, but the on the ground is it's people pulled together in in emergencies in all sorts of ways that I I think we don't we don't pay enough attention to and that that really merit more under that merit more attention but also that we need to to understand how those things operate and how do we how do we facilitate the kinds of networks that make it possible for people to to thicken those ties and and and, and um, act in ways that are are solidarizing if i can use the funny term mm. <laughs> it's really hopeful to think that as a whole people come together in times of just disaster or uncertainty and i like I like leaving it on, on that note there. Um, do you have any other upcoming events or, or talks or a space where people can find or follow more about your social cities? We're, uh, we're working on the website. Um, we're, not, we're not savvy that way, but we're working on it. <laughs> It'll be basic. Um, but we have, um, if people are interested, there will be an article should be out in the next couple of weeks based on um, 100 hours of participant observation that we did um, at outdoor public skating rinks in Guelph and Toronto. And that's going to come out in a, a European journal called Urban Planning, and it's open access, so it's free to anyone. It's not behind a, a firewall. Um, that article is called um, A Shared Ethic of every, uh, an every, a shared Everyday Ethic of Public Sociability, Outdoor Public Ice Rinks as Spaces for Encounter. And that's going to kind of cover some of the, we talked a little bit about some of the themes from that today. Um, and that's co-written with our the, um, our student research team, who I should give a shout out to. 
Uh, that's Shimon, who's a PhD student in sociology, um, and Amanda Dakin and Sophia Melagrana, who are uh, MA students in sociology, who who kind of have their own research projects as well, and who are who are um, research assistants on the on the Social Cities project, and are are all pretty awesome people. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today, Sarah and and Mervin, and uh, we look forward to reading uh, the article that's going to come out soon. Great. Great. And, and thank you. you so much for uh, making space to have these interesting kinds of conversations. Our pleasure.